Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Welcome, builders of a better future. It's time to down tools, albeit just for a little while, and run over the blueprints with us in another awesome episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here he is, the architect of our collective destinies, like it or not, wrestling with half a dozen rolls of 110 GSM A2 paper. Welcome, Matt. How's your week been? Well, we are doing some good. I like the intro there because... I received an email during the week, and I, I did forward you a copy of it, that just gave me an indication that all the things we talk about, as much as we want to be informative, we want to be entertaining, yeah. we also hope to be somewhat educational to people out there. Helpful. I, helpful, yeah. in particular with some of the scams that we know. And I do try and limit the scams, but we do end up talking about scams just about every week because there's a new yeah. flavour every week. But I received an email during the week, which I think was fantastic, where someone told me, or told both of us really, they addressed yeah. it to both of us, told us about the tale of woe in terms of the scam that they'd been subjected to. And finally, the penny dropped during it, and they actually recalled some of the information they'd learned from Tech Talk to have some alarm bells go off and yeah. tell them that this didn't seem quite right. But what was fascinating as I read through this story was how much trouble the scammers go to mm. to get to the point where they finally take your money. It's no longer just a simple little send out one email, hopefully they'll just give me their bank details and we'll take their money. It's a day, sometimes weeks long process of luring people in. Yeah, grooming. Yeah, to this false sense of security. And this one seemed like a simple enough process where they were simply advertising a job. Yeah. And this person who sent the email said, well, I was out there looking for some extra work cost of living pressure's a bit tight, interest rates going up, all the rest of it. Oh, this looks okay. I can do this work from home. I can do my normal job. I can do this work from home. So that sounds reasonable. And it's about catching the vulnerable people, isn't it? And that's exactly what this person said, that they were in a position where they needed to generate some extra income. Yeah. Things are a bit tough, a bit tight. So the first thing is, okay, I'm happy to do a bit of extra work from home. So it's someone with a bit of initiative, a bit of get up and go, and I'll do that work from home. And then the process flowed from there that they were doing a bit of work from home and they were getting training from this person. So the scam is not just a mm. quick hit scam. It's a, a grooming, as you say. It's a play. It's a sting. It's a sting. That's right. So you go through this process and then finally, thankfully, the alarm bell started going off when they had all this money sitting in an account that was their money, but they needed to just make a payment first to be able to release this money. And that's when, mm. luckily, thankfully, some alarm bills started going off going, hold on a second, yeah. why am I when paying I'm money? When I'm done for you, you just pay me. That's right. There's not a process that I have to pay you money first. But obviously, people get lured into it. Oh, no, yeah. I've got $5,000 sitting in the account. I've only got to pay 100 and then I can get that 5000 yeah. Wow, that'll unlock it. One thing that I found really interesting was once the jig was up, once this person said, hold on a sec, this isn't right. James and Matthew said, if I've got to pay money, then this doesn't sound right. The abuse that was thrown at them yeah. from the scammer then was a, a bit scary. She'd wasted their time. Exactly right. <laughs> she'd wasted their time. How dare you waste my yeah. time when I'm trying to steal money from you? Uh, so keep being alert out there. Yeah. They're sophisticated. They're clever. Yeah. They really do focus on some psychological triggers, as yeah. you say, vulnerable. And, and just, um, just small chinks in your armour. Yeah. Um, and they'll pry them open and they'll go to town. And then you look back and go, oh, how could I possibly have fallen for that? But yeah, don't feel right. bad about yourself. They are good at what they do. So yeah. you've just got to be alert. And the thing that I hate about it the most, I really get frustrated about this, is now when I receive phone calls or emails, and some of them are legitimate, my first reaction is suspicion. And I hate the fact that I'm suspicious mm. of every person that rings me, every person that exactly. sends me an email. Yep. And I, I have to be convinced that I'm, I'm erring on the side of suspicion. I have to be convinced and legitimate rather than, I'd rather be trustworthy, trusting. I'd rather yeah. trust someone that calls me as legitimate and then maybe every now and again have something that's a bit dodgy where it seems like it's the other way around. So I'm almost feeling suspicious of my fellow man when I don't want to be. It, it makes me a worse person for doing that. Exactly, yeah. Now, gone are the days of trust. Yeah, yeah mm. it does seem like that. Anyway, keep up the vigilance out there. That's exactly right. All right, time to tuck into our first story for the day. Remember when your fridge did one thing and just kept your stuff cold? 
that was the old days. Fridges are now programmable and have alarms and stuff, and some people even have their fridges hooked up to the internet. Well, ladies and gentlemen, even that is old hat now. It's time to usher in a new era of refrigeration technology. Prepare to be judged every time you open the door, folks, because Samsung have developed a new AI fridge model. Matt, I can hear it already saying, do you really need that cheese? <laughs> That'd be good, actually, wouldn't it? <laughs> One thing that I found interesting in fridges years ago was this idea that every item you took in and out of the fridge, you would scan the barcode as it went in and out so the mm. fridge could have an inventory of what was in there and mm. tell you what you needed to order, give you a shopping list for you, which seemed reasonable, except it was hard to scan the barcode on a capsicum or a banana. Yeah. So then you had to say, I'm putting a capsicum back in. How much of it? About half. Do I weigh it? Oh, this is all a bit too complicated. So I think that would have worked fantastically for five minutes. Yeah. And then after that, the novelty, novelty was over. That's exactly right. So that seemed to fail. Now, we've got AI that's come along, yeah. and it seems to be a bit better at processing lots of stuff. And so Samsung now have got some cameras inside their fridges, or not all their fridges, or some of their fridges, and in combination with a camera or cameras and an app, they can keep a running inventory of what's in your fridge. And maybe let me know when it's time to throw out those takeaway containers. Well, never, never. You never <laughs> they just get pushed away. to the back. Although some people do say Tupperware. The definition <laughs> of Tupperware is something you, you leave your takeaway in for three days until you throw it out. So yeah, rather than yeah, throw yeah. it out straight away. <laughs> but they've then combined this information with 160,000 recipes. So you can say, hmm, what should I cook for dinner tonight? Wow. Please, Samsung fridge or app on my phone, tell me what I should cook, knowing that I've got all the ingredients here to cook said meal, whatever that might be, or tell me what I need to go and buy from the supermarket to add this particular meal that I particularly like. Now, I did wonder about the pantry, whether you've got to put some cameras in your pantry <laughs> as well, because sometimes you use stuff in your That's pantry, exactly right, not yeah. just your fridge. Does it look in your freezer as well to see that you've got some frozen fish in there? Just put that in the oven and that'll do you for dinner tonight. Yeah. Pretty uncomplicated recipe, that one. But it is getting to the stage, I think, where you're going to rely more and more on some form of AI, because I thought about the best reason to use this, apart from showing off to your mates, is that you can be more efficient with your food use. So mm. when you've got some of those foods, maybe takeaway, but some other foods that might be in there for a bit too long, you might have a capsicum sitting there at the back of the fruit or the, the veggies tray, and a week later you open it up and go, oh, yeah, I didn't use that. Yep. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I might just pour that into the bin now. Whereas if you knew it was in there and recipes were being handed to you to use the items in your fridge, maybe you'd be more efficient with use. And we seem to be yeah. getting more people in this world. We seem to be getting less productive areas. We've talked before about some efficiencies in crops going up to try exactly. and feed the world. Yeah. Well, maybe this is another way. And I never quite understood my mother when I'd leave something on my plate and she'd say, there are a thousand starving in Ethiopia, finish <laughs> off your meal. I didn't know how that would help those starving in <laughs> Ethiopia. Right. What are you going to do? But mum knew. that up and send it off. Well, yeah. maybe. <laughs> but this would be a way if we all used our food more efficiently, yeah. maybe there would be more food for the rest of the world. So it sounds fascinating. I do love my gadgets, but I must admit... I'm not rushing out to get this one. This one doesn't get me that excited that I think this is fantastic, although my food needs are pretty simple. So maybe if you're a bit more complicated in your food needs, this might be fantastic for you. So it sounds interesting. Where do we go to next? Maybe we just get to that point where there are cameras throughout your place and then someone cooks it for you. So mm. I'd be then a bit more excited about it if my robot in my kitchen then said, well, I know what you've got in your fridge and your pantry. And here are the suggestions, and I click on one of those, and then they make it for me. <laughs> uh, then I'm there. But at this stage, I'd still have to make it myself. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, where do we go to next? Our next story. And I'm feeling a little bit like a sale of the century gift shop hostess from 1985 right now, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, if an AI fridge needs good company, it can pass the lonely hours away chatting to your AI oven. The AI oven will check your roast turkey without letting all the heat out and give you tips on the perfect souffle. Matt, first the fridge, now the oven. How is an AI oven really going to work? An AI oven with cameras. Mm. That's the important part here, with cameras. And there's a bit of technology in that. The cameras in the fridge that we just talked about 
Well, having cameras at four degrees Celsius is probably not that big a deal. There are lots of cameras that are designed to go outdoors and it gets down below four degrees Celsius in lots of parts of the world. But a camera to go to 350 degrees Celsius, that's a bit cleverer. So they've got cameras in their ovens and they've got a bunch of smart probes. And I love this idea. When I was a kid and trying to cook a cake or a pavlova, I was trying to cook occasionally a pavlova, and I'd be there looking at it, trying to see through the dirty, disgusting glass yeah. in the front of our oven and <laughs> yeah, vaguely it's an make... It's futility. Yeah, that's right. So then, of course, you'd open it up to look. Mum would say, don't let the heat out. Yeah. That'll wreck it. It'll all flop now. Oh, That'll be a disaster. destroyed. Exactly right. So what you need in every oven is a smart probe so you can just keep an eye on the temperatures inside and maybe some alerts there as well to let you know how things are going. And, of course... A camera inside would let you keep an eye on the rising of that cake or the pavlova without having to open the oven and let all that heat escape. But the most important thing and the thing that Samsung got most excited about was you can also use this camera to give you a time-lapse video of your cooking <laughs> outcomes. So, so you can then put it on Facebook. Exactly right. Lovely. So your, your social media can That's now be flooded. everything. Not just with the food <laughs> that you've just cooked and served yeah. on the kitchen table. Yeah. It's here's the time-lapse no, of so this yesterday, being cooked. isn't it? That's You're right. Taking a photo of your dinner. That's right. Only the outcome. Where's the process of yeah, this being take cooked? take a photo of the cooking. <laughs> now, they have got some sensors. They've got some moisture sensors in there as well. So you can keep an eye on the moisture in there. So they've got some good features as well to try and make sure you do get a good outcome. But we, obviously someone in Samsung is saying we need cameras everywhere. Mm. We've discovered Mm. these new cameras that are cheap to make or whatever. Let's put them in everything that we've got. But it's going to get to that stage, I think, where we're going to have all these things connected in some more complicated way. Ovens and cooktops and rangers and dishwashers and ovens and fridges and you name it. It's going to be all connected there in some way. I've got a question about this because we've got a camera in there, right? Um, the window of the oven gets all fogged up and, and scunge all over it. What's going to happen to the camera? It's got a little tiny bit of glass on it, you think, so that would get more gunged up than a big piece of glass, surely. <laughs> so that's probably the one thing you've got to do is make sure you clean that clean off that a little on bit on a regular first. basis, yeah. if you like to watch your dinner cooking. Well... Once we have this, who wouldn't live streaming would be the next thing. Forget about a time lapse of it. Live streaming your dinner. That's more pressure. (laughs) That's right. Now, we've been guilty of dissing the concept of solar-powered electric cars here on Tech Talk in previous episodes. There just isn't enough surface area available to charge the battery. However, solar-powered trucks, on the other hand, now there's some top-notch service area, folks, and what a waste it is without corner-to-corner solar panels. You may have guessed that the Swedes would have been among the front-runners to have got to have the first go at this, and tests have begun already to show how solar cells can improve the range on Scania's big rigs. Matt, how did they go with it? Well, I, I do want to just mention the, the surface area game because we do yeah, often talk about that. Yeah, we surface area, don't we? It, it was Mr. Crispin was the biology teacher back at school. Oh, right. Who used to say that if you don't know the answer. Shout out to Mr. Crispin. That's right. And he, I never had Mr. Crispin. I didn't do biology, but I heard enough about this legendary statement before exams. And if you don't know the answer, right surface area. And when you think about it from a biology perspective, it's the why does an elephant have large ears? Why does crushed ice melt faster than a single block? Why do our lungs have alveoli? Even if you go as far as race cars have slick tyres, why does Mm -hmm. a golf ball have dimples? Why do radiators have fins? All these answers are surface area. And exactly as you said, when people talk about EVs, they go, oh, fantastic. Stick a solar panel on the roof of the car and everything's right. And of course, the answer again to that is surface area. Thank you, Mr. Crispin. One of the things that's interesting, if you start doing the maths around that, the At the equator, at midday, we have approximately one kilowatt per square metre of solar irradiance. And then, efficiency-wise, solar panels, maybe 25% seems a reasonable number. 30% seems to be the theoretical maximum. So if mm. you said 25%, that would mean that, say, three square metres maybe on the roof of a car, just roughly one yeah, and a half by two. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah, okay. So you could generate, at the equator... At midday, driving your car out in the sun, 0.75 kilowatts. Or let's make it something more practical. Drive for an hour at midday, which is hard to do. You'd probably have to drive past midday or before midday. 0.75 kilowatt hours generated. Now, a reasonable use of power for an electric car seems to be around 15 kilowatt hours 
per 100 kilometres. So let's say you're doing 100 kilometres an hour, use 15 kilowatt hours, and you might put back 0.75 kilowatt hours. So for all that effort to put solar panels on the roof, you get back about 5% of the power. That's assuming you're driving at the equator at midday. (laughs) So obviously as you go further from the equator, as you go further from midday, those numbers start to look worse and worse. But surface area gain is the answer. So... Scania, actually it's part of the seven largest truck manufacturers who got together in Europe in 2020 and said, we need to make a difference. We're going to get to the point that we're going to not produce any diesel vehicles by 2040, which is a long way away, mm. but you've got to start doing something about it in the short term to get so there. It's a long way away, but I remember when it was 20, oh, 2005, oh, actually, let's say change that to 2008, and 2008 didn't seem like such a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. 15 years ago. So time does go quickly. So Scania has started off with a trailer of a semi with 100 square metres of solar panels. So again, if I do those same numbers, 25% efficiency, etc., then you might generate near the equator, close to midday, mm. 25 kilowatt hours of energy, which sounds pretty good, but remember a truck uses a bit more power than a car. Sure. And so the, and I looked at some examples mainly around the Tesla semi, but some other examples as well. Around about 100 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometres seems to be what a semi uses. So 25 kilowatt hours, if you could put that back in, there's 25% of the power you're using. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, so it's not perfect. Yeah, it's just to give you a little bit extra range rather than topping up the battery and, and letting you run for free. That's right. Now, keep in mind that trucks do sometimes stop unloading a truck, loading up a truck. So there are times when it's dead still and it's putting some power back in, but what I started to think about is how you might then use this in a practical sense. And if you're trying to get a thousand kilometers out of your truck, for example, well, you'd need a thousand kilowatt hour battery in that truck, which is a fair size battery, mm. about 10 times larger than say a Tesla Model S battery. But again, you've got a truck, so you've got a bit more space to put it in. But if you did that, you might say, well, instead of a thousand kilowatt hour battery, I could have an 800 kilowatt hour battery driving for the time you might need to drive that, you could probably put about 200 kilowatt hours in from the sun. So you're getting 1,000 kilowatt hours, mm. but only with an 800 kilowatt hour battery. Mm. And you got effectively that 200 kilowatts or 200 kilowatt hours for free from the sun. So then I broke down the numbers. And for example, if I was driving 1,000 kilometers in a truck, in a diesel truck, made a few estimations around fuel economy, price of diesel, etc., it might cost me about $1,000 in diesel. If I was to drive a thousand kilometres in a truck that had an 800 kilowatt hour battery that I had to charge up, I might spend $120 oh, in electricity. Wow. So that starts to sound fairly attractive. Again, I don't see EV or electric trucks, ETs, electric trucks being used on Perth to Sydney, 4,000 kilometre trips because the refueling would be a bit clumsy. But there's a lot of truck journeys that are less than a thousand kilometres. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of getting some of those trucks out there and using them in different ways, I still think hydrogen will be the long-term solution. But for some of those trucks doing short to medium runs, well, already I'm seeing them in America. I'm seeing them in Europe. As I mm-hmm. said, the Tesla semis are out there, other manufacturers as well. So in this particular example, Scania is actually using a hybrid model. They've got a diesel engine in combination with electric motors and batteries. But again, this is all the test phase to see how much power they can generate. But you talk about surface area, that starts to look pretty impressive when you've got that surface area across that whole trailer. So I think it looks pretty good. And again, they are doing the testing deliberately in Sweden because you've only got limited sun in Sweden. You've got cloudy skies a lot, a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. And so... Well, that's what I was going to mention that. I mean, you, you, we're assuming that you've got sunny, sunny days every day when that's yep. not going to happen. But yeah, you're sorry? Sorry, yeah. sorry? So, well, in, in November in Stockholm, for example, it's cloudy 75% of the time. In July, it's cloudy 50% of the time. So the logic is if they can do it and actually achieve some sort of reasonable generation of electricity in Sweden, mm. then hold on for the rest of the world. It'll be much more effective. And again, Absolutely. you start talking about trucks in Australia. We've got sun. That's one thing we have definitely got here in Australia. And we don't have a lot of clouds. And when we go through lots of our droughts, we say, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of clouds. Mm. But it's a reality of it. So we could use this in some way, shape or form. So it might happen. Maybe they'll put it on some cars and say, hey, park it outside all day and you'll get, you'll save an extra $2 on your electricity bill. But I don't see, see it as that effective yet. But on trucks, different story altogether. Different story. It's been eight years since Volkswagen were busted for cheating on their environmental emissions test. Well, with 
Tail planted firmly between their legs, they've gone back to the lab and flung themselves deep into the EV market. But not without paying homage to their petrol-powered past, the renowned GTI badge lives on with a gentle whir rather than that throaty grumble, Matt. I actually haven't forgiven them yet. Yeah? I just, I had a friend buy a VW a few years ago and yeah, I went, oh, And you looked at them sideways you? and thought, Yeah, that's right. And... What does it take for me to forgive them for what they did? I mean, it was such a deliberate process mm. in what they did. But again, I think many people said that every manufacturer was doing it. It was just so happened that VW was the one that was caught. Or maybe yeah, it was a bit right. like the Lance Armstrong situation where they were doing it the best slash worst of all of them. So they finally went too far and got caught. But I actually think the way I will forgive them is when they really lead the world in their EV transition. And they are trying. So they're getting there. And I think that's where the board probably said, well, We've stuffed up pretty badly here. Mm. How are we going to... Because it was all about being Toyota. That was their whole focus, why they were cheating on their emissions testing. Uh, you said Toyota? VW, you mean? No, no. It was all about... Oh, VW sorry. was all about beating Toyota. My apologies. That yeah, was, sorry. Gotcha. Th- yeah, yeah. That seemed to be their focus. They were number... Toyota was number one in the world. VW was number gotcha. two. Gotcha. And they wanted to beat Toyota. So that was their focus. And they couldn't beat them fair and square. So they had to cheat effectively to beat them. But I think what they've now said is, you know what? We didn't need to go and cheat to beat Toyota. We just need to be more progressive, more innovative, and EVs are the way to go. And what I love about this is the classic GTI, that GTI badge is something that people associate in the VW era with something that's performance, it's a real pocket rocket, yeah. and, and it might have even been VW that came up with the term or one of the VW cars that was first called a pocket rocket, and it just does describe some of their little cars that are absolute goers, and in a small package, you don't need to have this big hulking car for it to go fast. But again, in terms of this whole transition and let's make the world better, they're doing the GTI badge in EV. Now, they haven't announced everything about it yet. They do these different platforms. This platform they're using is the ID.2. I don't know if you meant to say the dot in there, but ID.2. It'll do. It'll do. And so that's their footprint, if you like. But on that footprint, they're basically turning this into an absolute screamer of a little EV. And it makes Mm. sense. Things like... A Mini, for example, Minis make um, the Mini Cooper S. They make the Mini in an EV. And I love the idea of that. It's small. The batteries are down low. Absolutely that low center of gravity helps. And you haven't got a big amount of car to push around, so it can really be an absolute goer in terms of its performance. The issue with this one, the only issue I've got here, is it's not available yet. They're talking about it. They're showing it off already, but it's not going to be available to 2027. So it's a few few years away. I'd love it to be here a bit earlier. They're saying it'll be approximately $42,000 in Australian dollars, so that's pretty good in terms of price. Yeah, for sure. Not a big car, but this is where I think we're going to get to. You'll just start to see more variety and the number of EVs out there and that'll be exciting so if people want a small car small town run around they can get to zero to 100 very quickly then this is the type of car that'll be available for them yeah the VW GTI the new Tesla Model 3 is out and about and it has sexy written all over it folks Albeit figuratively speaking, though, for those of you still holding out because you're waiting for something sleeker, faster, longer range, whatever, your list of of excuses is invalid. And you may want to consider the resale value on your next petrol purchase. The Tesla Model 3 is here, Matt. It's been enough to get my brother over the line. Ah, <laughs> he sold that's, his. That's the, the litmus test. That was that was the one for me. He sold his nice, powerful AMG Merc and said petrol cars are gone. But he's been procrastinating about what EV to buy. He yeah, saw the writing on the wall. Yeah, well done. But he needed to work out which EV to buy. He'd been looking at some. He'd been hiring some, going to some of the higher car companies and hiring some. He wanted to make sure he got the right one. But when he saw, it was known as the Highland, the Tesla Model 3 Highland, when he saw some specs coming out from that and some minor changes there, he went, that's enough. So he's gone and whacked his $400 deposit on and should be here by January. And All right. I went and looked on the Tesla website and you can't buy the old model now. So if you order a Tesla Model 3 now, it's just going to be this new model. That's it. So they're not trying to get rid of old stock. Maybe all the old stock was gone. But they just do things so differently to normal yeah. car manufacturers. They don't have this new whole facelift model every couple of years. They don't announce the model each year with a year number next to it so you know what year it is. They don't have clearing out sales of the old model. They just don't say much about it. Next thing you know, the new model's there. A few things I like about this, they've kept effectively the same drivetrain and battery and a bit like the Hyundai Ionic 5 to the Ionic 6, 
they got extra range out of the Hyundai via aerodynamics. That's exactly what they've done with this particular model. Only some small changes, just some subtle changes to the aerodynamics of it. And it looks the same, although if you look at the front, you can just spot it being a little bit different. But now... The long-range model they're quoting, and this is the WLTP quote, 678 kilometres of range. Oh, you, wow. You won't get that unless you drive under the same conditions as the WLTP test, which no one does. Mm. But effectively, that gives you a pretty a, incredible range in the long-range model. I am a little bit disappointed in one part. Normally, you had the short-range model or the, or the standard model, if you like, the long-range model, then the performance model. And the Model 3, the current Model 3 my wife's got to the performance model because everyone needs to go from 0 to 100 in 3.1 seconds, <laughs> yes. surely. But <laughs> they, an- they announced, that's exactly it, they announced this with the standard, then the long range, and then the, oh, nothing else. And I thought, oh, maybe they're just waiting to get around to the performance. But some investigations with Tesla and some discussions with some Tesla employees, they haven't seen anything about a performance model. And they also said the performance model wasn't that big a seller. So maybe, and let's face it, the long-range model still does 0 to 100 in about 4.4 seconds. So you're paying a bit extra for 1.3 seconds of performance. And was that absolutely critical? These these acceleration rates are just phenomenal. They are. And sooner or later, we're going to be going back in time. As <laughs> you hit the accelerator and... And you're right you before you left. Negative seconds. <laughs> and it, it is, well, you're spot on. In the old days, when you looked at supercars, the Ferraris, the Lamborghinis, four and a half seconds was the benchmark. Four and a half seconds, if you got mm. under that, that's a supercar. Now, we're just talking about... A, Long yeah, range, Tesla, 4.4 seconds, yeah, whatever, that's, that's right. normal. So you're right, it's kind of redefined how we think about vehicles and redefined how we think about performance. So they've they've changed the aerodynamics, that's increased the range a little bit. They've also got the acoustic glass extended to more parts of it. So in the Model 3 beforehand, it had, and when I say acoustic glass, it's basically dual pane glass with a, an air gap in the middle to make it quieter. Mm. That was basically on the front windows before. Now they've extended that to the front and rear windows and the the glass roof, the rear and, and top of the roof as well. What they're finding is that people are enjoying the quiet so much that just that little bit of road noise that you can't hear in a normal petrol car, that little bit of road noise, how do we keep that out? How do we keep ourselves in this beautiful little cocoon where we hear nothing outside the car. You don't even realise you're driving. No, that's right. <laughs> so this is the, the sort of thing they're working on to try and make it quieter. The aerodynamics make it a little bit quieter as well, but that acoustic glass has changed. They've got a rear screen, which I love this idea. The front screen sitting there between the driver and the passenger, that's great to play games on, but you can't mm. do that while you're driving because mm. surely it might be a bit distracting if you're the passenger and the driver's watching what's happening there. In the rear seat, though, well... Poor old reset passengers have to bring their own device. Well, no longer. You've now got a screen in the middle. Don't know if it does any <laughs> games on there, but you can control the music. You can control things from the back, the air conditioning, that sort of thing in the back as well. Surely they'll add games to there as well. Surely they have a, to. A given there. So a few and little changes. Noises. A few little changes like that. Uh, a little bit brighter. The LEDs inside there. Uh, again, the suspension is probably one of the things that I noticed. I used to have a Model S had air suspension. Went to a Model Three. A little bit rougher ride, just a little bit tighter. They do seem to have updated the suspension and stiffened the body a little bit, so it seems like the ride is just that little bit better. So, again, you've got them going across some parts of the world, US, Canada, Mexico. You'll get deliveries later this year. Here in Australia, early next year. I'm keen, hopefully my brother's turns up early in the rollout, and I'm keen to go for a drive one to see if you can notice much difference from the standard Model 3. But great to see they're not resting on their laurels. They're not saying... We're the number one EV company in the world. We're the number one selling car in Australia with the Model Y. Huh, we just do nothing now. They're still trying to innovate and make their cars better. It doesn't seem like that long ago that ham radio operators, that is amateur radio enthusiasts operating on a reserved long wave bandwidth, were uh, a bit of a thing. Radio nerds would turn on their sets and either scan the bandwidths to see who else was out there, or alternatively, they'd just choose a wavelength and broadcast to whoever in the world was happy to tune in. 30 years ago, it was a nice way for, um, let's say, eccentrics to connect and um, exchange ideas, conspiracy theories and such. Well, in 2023, there are much, much easier ways for crazy people to connect. And so there are no surprises that long wave radio is fading to black. 
Those long-wave analogue ham radio sets are finally taking their place next to those analogue cathode ray tube TV sets. Matt, the end of an era for some unique enthusiasts around the world. Did you ever tune in as a kid and listen to some of this stuff? I, I never got my hands on a ham radio set, but I used to read books or magazines or whatever, and there'd be kids who had a ham radio set, and they'd be talking to some elderly guy in in Russia or whatever, <laughs> you know? And well, my eldest brother, he's about 17 years older than me, and so he was, from my first memories, he was off at uni, but he was doing electrical engineering, and when he'd come home, he used to play around with of radio course he sets. Had a ham radio set. That's right, and just listening because I remember, and it might have even been my second eldest brother as well, play with it and stuff. But I remember going into one of their rooms there, and they had something there, and they'd listen to this stuff, and it was hard work listening to it because it was a fair bit of crackle and yeah. static, and it just you'd hear some voices, and there'd be different languages. But it was quite fascinating. And when I look back at it a few years after that, I went, oh, that's pretty cool what they were doing there, yeah, listening to these yeah. people from all over the world. And it was all over the world. So, the Yeah, so this is essentially an AM wave that they're bouncing off the ionosphere, really, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. you get the, the weather conditions right, and that's exactly right. You can bounce off the ionosphere. You're talking about the world. frequencies from 30 to 300 kilohertz here mm. in terms of the, the, the frequencies you're you, Going for that long range wave, radio, the long wave radio, and, and they were designated, weren't they? They were they were allowed, they were kept aside just for amateurs to to have a bit of a fun. Well, no, I think they also had some broadcasts in the early days. So BBC, for example, used to claim way back in the nineteen twenties or thirties, and they used to say BBC broadcasting across the UK. They had one transmitter but it was a long-wave transmitter, Mm. so you could get it effectively across all of the UK. So I think there were some professional organisations that did it as well. Again, maybe they should have been not doing that. Maybe it was meant to be for amateurs, but (laughs) uh, I think the idea was that you could just be transmitting on this frequency and it could go as long as it could go. So there was a lot of amateurs on there. There was some official broadcasts on there. There was a whole bunch of stuff on there. There's also, because there was was no policing it. You could could just uh, jump on there and you could be broadcasting whatever you wanted to broadcast. You've got, so in Denmark and Iceland, you've got stations still transmitting, but they're closing. Yeah, they're closing end of this year, next year. And BBC Radio 4 still broadcasts on long wave, but they're saying they're probably going to cut that out soon. You've got some in Romania and Poland and Morocco, and so there's still a few around, but the big issue, or two big issues, one, the actual transmission for these ones that are a bit more powerful is expensive because they're not nice little compact transmitters that can fit in a shoebox. <laughs> they're the big old ones with valves and you can't just slip down to the corner radio shack store and pick up a new little (laughs) semiconductor and slot it in you've got to go and get these big valves that slot in light bulbs yeah yeah Yeah. that's right so trying to keep them going and trying to well pay for the electricity for a start and then and then maintenance that's right so that's one of the issues they're facing. So some enthusiasts want to keep them going. They think it's fantastic. Let's keep them going. But now the radio quality you've got got the internet. And that's the thing. The only way you might have been able to find out some of this random information from across the world was via your long-wave radio. But now you've got internet. You can stream lots of radio stations. So the necessity for it is probably not there. The hobbyists probably aren't there. And the expense of keeping it all going is very high. So it's probably getting It's a very niche market. It is. And and the 25 people who still do it can do it, but they're going to have to look after it themselves and they're going to have the money to finance it. So how long before we'll be having the same conversation about AM radio? Yeah, I know. Because FM's kind of a bit the same where you've got much higher quality, you can stream it now. Do you really need that long range that AM gives you in comparison to FM? Mm, Don't know. So anyway, if you really love your long wave radio, go and tune in soon because you might be able to tune in for much longer. that produces the best results in trying to get Aussies off their bums and into some physical activity. Life Be In It ads in the 80s became part of the culture, but what truly motivates us to exercise? Is it a new outfit that you bought a size too small? Is it a gym membership? Is it a pair of new joggers or some active wear? Well, the answer, folks, is nope, 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 and a big fat nope. No, folks, the thing that is most likely to get you moving is the not-so-humble fitness tracker. Matt, we just love to know how far we've run, how fast we've done it, and how our heart rates are going through the ordeal, don't we? One of the things I love is that it does make a difference, and I'll talk about some studies here in a moment, but I remember hearing something, might have been late-night TV or some 
motivational speaker sometime that I stumbled across and they said the difference between people that actually manage to lose weight mm. and people that don't with the same target they've got is the people that lose weight get on the scales at least once a day. Yeah. So they're looking at it going, oh, okay, that's bad or gee, that's good or I'll give myself a pat on the back. And so measuring it, monitoring it, seemed to make a big difference. And I saw a cartoon the other day about your gym membership and there was a, a guy in the cartoon standing at the counter of a gym and he said, so can I get a discount on the membership because I'm just going to get the membership and I'm never going to use it. <laughs> and I think yeah. that's the problem with so many gym yeah. memberships. They get the membership and sometimes people say, I'll get the annual one because that'll motivate me. But once no. they've paid it, they no, don't no, seem no. to get motivated. That never motivates anyone. No. The gym membership doesn't do it. No, that's right. So there was one study by the University of South Australia and they did a study, and I'm not sure how they measured this because you'd want to wear something to measure it, but they did a study between people who wore some device, didn't matter what it was, some device that tracked their steps, and people who didn't. And again, I don't know how they measured how many steps the people that didn't because they didn't have something on to measure their steps, but mm. I'll leave that to the experts at the University of South Australia. They said that people who had wearables on had 1,800 steps more per day than people who didn't actually monitor something. Wow. So that was a fair difference. Now, uh, often people talk about 1,000 steps about a kilometre, so 1.8 kilometres more, and it's not always steps, it's activity, so mm. that's fine. Now, you also saw a, another study that had people who had wearables increase their daily activities by 40 minutes on average. So that's pretty reasonable. That's pretty good. Now, that doesn't mean they're going for a, a marathon run and doing 40 minutes longer of doing that. It's the incidental exercise throughout yeah, the day. Yeah, just staying on your feet through the day. Exactly right. I reckon it's, it's about the instant feedback, isn't it? So you can continually check, particularly when you've got a new watch or a new tracker of whatever sort, yeah, you've spent a lot of time just seeing how you're going through the day. Well, it's better than that. And the studies show this as well. It's not just about you having a bit of an eye on how things are going. It's about you having a bit of an eye on it versus someone uh, else yeah. and in families. So they did some studies and looked at families and saw how families that are wearing these devices, in particular families that had little competitions, might track. And of course, there's no surprise here, sibling rivalry absolutely mm. pushed the activity yeah, right. up and up. And I know we've got, all our kids have got devices, wearables, and myself and my wife have, and sometimes one of the kids go, right, we're doing a little competition for the next week, and it's a seven-day competition, and so you invite everyone, and I guarantee that all of the family, <laughs> myself included, activity goes up, because you don't want to be beaten by your wife or your, your mother or your father or whatever it might be. So This is the thing, but if one of them starts losing regularly, they just give up. Well, that's probably part of it as well. So you've got to, you've got to be careful about that. You've got to, you've got to some, let them in the door every now and then. Some false victories every now and again, right? So, so you're saying my undefeated status? I should let that go at yeah, some stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> at some stage. I mean, there'll be some that are trying to beat it, but there'll be some that just go, "Well, pff, I'm not going to beat Dad." Well, that's that's exactly right. Um, so having some competition, having some people you share it with is is a really important thing. But just as you said, keeping an eye on it, just yeah. checking on it on a regular basis. But it's also a bit of comparison as well. And I love the ones that do things like, well done, that's your fastest 5K run. Well, it's run. the affirmation. That's yeah. right. And, and look, some don't say well done or anything like that. But for me, if you've just done a 7K run and you look at your watch and it says, yes, 7.01, yep. yeah, you've done a little bit more than you needed to do. Yep, yep. Um, and, um, and here's the time that you did it in. Yeah. And you can compare that directly to the last time you ran that, yep. which was, for me, a very long time ago. Yep. So <laughs> there is a bit to say the, the um, medical... Internet Research Journal said that some of the outcomes are contingent on the user's initial level of motivation. And so maybe there's some skewing of the results because people that go and buy a wearable, maybe they're a little bit more motivated in the first place. Yeah. If someone says, my job is to sit around the couch and play video games all day, they're probably not going to rush out and spend money on a trackable or wearable. Mm. So I, I get that as well, that maybe the results are skewed a little bit. But in general, it seems like Go and give it a go. Go and get a wearable. There's a variety of different models and devices out there. But it seems like it's a fairly ineffective, sorry, a fairly cheap way, um, inexpensive way to actually help your health in some way, shape or form. Absolutely. And we said affirmation before. I reckon I have no doubt that um, the most successful gyms out there are the ones where they've got the personal trainers just sort of roaming about saying, hey, look, you seem to be doing a lot more than a lot better than what you did Last time you were in here. Not the ones that yell at you? <laughs> Not the ones <laughs> that just collect the towels and ignore you. Yeah, yeah. probably true too.
Here's a quiz for you, Matt. It's the hardwood softwood quiz. Your job is just to identify timber types as either hardwood or softwood. Are you ready? Different. Radiata pine. Soft. Yeah, good. Red gum. Hard. Yep. Ironbark. Hard. Walnut. Hard. Correct on all counts. Balsa. Hardwood. Oh, no! <laughs> yeah, not supposed to get that one. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, it was a surprise to me when I found out and years ago. My father's a forester. Um, uh, when balsa was a hardwood. Balsa is such a lightweight wood that it's often confused as a softwood, but it's very low density. It's actually quite strong, and that's why it's sometimes used in surfboards and model planes, etc. It's a really good uh, wood at absorbing energy, and it's been used in engineering for decades, if not centuries. But we are in an age, and a new material has been discovered in a robo lab that is even better, Matt. It's a good question for a trivia night, actually, because hardwoods, and I'm no expert on this, but hardwoods... I think they have leaves and flowers and enclosed seeds, but softwoods have needles and produce cones instead of flowers. And there's some other technical definitions as well. Most people, many people, would think that hardwood refers to how hard the wood is and softwood refers to how soft the wood is, but it's actually related more to the specifics of the actual tree itself. Other components of it that that's right there are certainly it. other facets to the classification and and the iron just the iron bark one was a straight guess yeah, yeah. because i i actually did the mm, iron bark that sounds hard well, i'll just most, go hard with that most one. australian <laughs> natives are hardwoods so oh, you you can, that's a safe option yeah right good oh, that's why i did it yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you're right balsa you do think you've made paper airplanes out of balsa not paper you've made airplanes out of balsa wood so you often think about balsa wood being a very soft wood but it's mm. actually classified as a hardwood but it's that low density of the wood that makes it really effective in a whole range and of things. most people, I assume, have got some sort of familiarity with balsa. And, yeah, and yeah, that's right. So one of the things is that it would be fantastic to use balsa in things like a crash helmet. Mm. We don't use balsa in that because it's a bit hard to mould it around the shape of a helmet mm. and make sure it's not going to deteriorate over time. So we use a polystyrene instead. Potentially cheaper as well to use just that polystyrene. Yeah, surely. that's right. But it's actually incredibly efficient at absorbing energy because it is so low density it mm. actually absorbs energy really well the efficiency level of that absorption is 71.8 percent so that's fantastic one of the things that we've often talked about is using ai and some sort of machine learning to actually do experiments over and over and over that humans would take a lot longer to do and that's exactly what we've got in this particular story where you've got an autonomous robotic laboratory and it does two things. It uses a 3D printer or a series of 3D printers to print a material with different composition. And then it takes that material and does a test on it. Now, if this was done with good old-fashioned humans in the old days, mm. you'd have this slow process and you'd be thinking about the material structure and you'd be thinking about what do we put in that mixture and then we'll go over here now and we'll do some testing on it and that all takes time. This particular process, this lab, can run 50 experiments a day. So 50 times a day, wow. they can produce the material and then test the material and then define the outcomes from that. And they're not necessarily saying, oh, well, we use a little bit more of this particular material in that mixture. We'll try that again. It's just trying a series of processes to go stepping through because you don't know exactly what you're going to get out of it. With this technology... They've done, and obviously they've set up more than just one process, they've done 25,000 experiments with this laboratory. And they just keep finding things. No, that's not quite as good. That's not quite as good. And then every now and again they go, oh, hold on, this is better. So they've got this new structure called Willow. So not sure exactly why, linkage to timber there, or whatever. Mm. But anyway, they've called it Willow. And it's got an energy-absorbing efficiency of 73.3%. So it's just a 3D printed plastic. It's using seven types of plastics to get together to basically build that that outcome, that final product. And then with the testing they found, it's now better than balsa. So it's the number one in the world, but you can produce it in whatever shape and produce it easily and efficiently because it's just 3D printed with these seven plastics. Wow. What a great example of how we can make the world a better place by using this AI and just this ongoing experimentation, which would take years and years for humans to do. For sure. But a machine, yeah, sure. Go and do it. I'll go and have a cup of tea. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> so it sounds quite incredible. Are we going to see this in crash helmets tomorrow? Um, probably not tomorrow, but I don't think it'll be that far away before we'll see 
things using this, but this is just one example. There are so many other examples where you might say, okay, we're finding a material that will withstand heat or we're finding a material mm. that will have some mm. other properties and you can have a bit of a guess, you can use a bit of science or you can just keep experimenting after and after and after and see how you go. And when you develop a new material and then you convince people to, that it's necessary, you make billions of dollars. So that's your standard advice, isn't it? Material that's my science. standard advice when they ask me, how can I use science to make money? Okay, folks, time to do an inventory. Just for interest's sake, how much robot, or how many, how much, how many robots do you have currently in your home? They used to be items of extravagance, but as we approach the second quarter of the 21st century, they're certainly not uncommon. The most common items would be, of course, robotic vacuum cleaners and lawnmowers. These items and many more are set to become mainstream in the next few years. If the annual Berlin Trade Fair is anything to go by, Matt... And that's exactly what I did. I went through and looked at the IFA Berlin Trade Fair and I went, I want to see what's happening there. What's the flavour at the moment? What is the, mm. the thing that I'm seeing override everything else? And it was robotics. It was home robotics that struck yeah, me. Okay. We see robotics used in manufacture of cars, for example. But I'm not talking about that type of robotics. I'm just talking about the stuff that you and I will use every day in our normal place, our work, our home, etc. The robotic vacuum cleaners are getting there in terms of homes. You see them in a lot of homes, but they're getting much better. So you've got ones now, for example, that will automatically change between a mop function and a vacuum function. So if you've got a house that's got some hard floor and some carpet, mm. it'll go along and vacuum on the carpet, change over to mopping on the hard surface, and then change back as it goes. And then they'll get to an auto-empty station that'll basically take out the rubbish that it's picked up and clean the water, put some new water in. So you can check that station maybe once every couple of weeks, maybe once a month, <laughs> and then it will do the rest for you automatically. So we're getting much better at things like that. We've talked before about the poo detection. It's getting much better <laughs> at that. So you don't end up with smearing all over the household. Sounds like something out of Cat in the Hat and yeah. some ring in the bathtub, but you're, you're getting better with ones like that. And they're also getting more cameras on them now so they can pick up things that they shouldn't vacuum up, socks, poo, whatever, and things that they should keep vacuuming over. So they're getting better there. Robotic lawnmowers, I think it was 2011 that I put in my first robotic lawnmower, and it was a bit of a pain to put the wire around the whole edge of the outside of the lawn, but that was necessary, and still now, the one that I use now does that. But the robotic lawnmowers that I saw over the Berlin Trade Fair, now you just stick a sensor in each corner of the lawn, and it will work it out from oh, there. Right. So a lot easier than sticking that wire under the ground around the whole perimeter. Something on my Wi-Fi. Well, it's, it's got... Uh, some sort of barrier there that it puts up and then it learns still some other pieces because it detects when it goes off the lawn, but it wants some basic parameters in terms of yeah. where it goes wow. as an extreme. So that's obviously improving dramatically as well. And then you start to wonder about your pool. We've had creepy crawlies for a while on the bottom of the pool. That's yeah. fine. But now you've got ones that float across the top and pick up all the leaves before they get the chance to sink to the bottom of the pool. <laughs> so that makes it better as well. So I, I looked at it and I just thought there were lots of new innovations with robotics. But the other one that got me was so many different robotic devices and so many different brands. So you've got the ones that you've been familiar with before, but now you've got ones like Karcher, who have been well known yeah. for cleaning products, but high-pressure cleaning products, not necessarily robotics. So they've jumped into the game. You've got Eufy, you've got RoboRock, you've got Eva, Ecovac, uh, iRobot's been around for a while. So you've got all these ones there. Dyson as well has been around for a while. So you've got these different ones that are coming. And all up, I counted over 20 robot vacuum cleaners alone, new products being launched at the Berlin Trade Fair. Mm. So it's getting there. And if you haven't got one in your home now, it probably won't be that long before you'll have one in your home somewhere doing something for you. And we'll all be living like the Jetsons. <laughs> exactly. The arrival of AI to the mainstream is already becoming something, something of a revolution, and every revolution has its casualties. Matt, what are the potential repercussions for the Australian economy as AI sinks its teeth in? $600 billion of economic activity is expected to be affected by AI. Wow. $600 billion. So that's a report by Deloitte, who has done a, a report just talking about the significance of AI in the Australian economy. Wow. Now... One of the things that's interesting about that is that when they looked at large businesses adopting AI in some way, shape or form, 
less than 10% of businesses have done that so far. And that could be just simple things like helping write letters, helping maybe one of the secretaries just write some formal letters, just posting some content on social media. You get businesses doing that, but that's less than 10%. But then when you looked at students, and I'm talking about university and above students, not high school students, 58% of students are already using AI in some form. Now, the students of today are the employees of tomorrow. Exactly. And they'll be leading these organisations tomorrow. So you can see that probably there's going to be a fair switch over over the next five to ten years as these students start to get into the workplace and they say, hey, old person, why are you still doing that that way? (laughs) Why don't you do it this way? And, of course, everyone shudders and thinks these youngsters, oh, oh, actually, that does make sense. Yeah, okay, sure, we'll do it that way. So that's certainly going to change. About 75% of employees are concerned about AI, probably with their job, but some of them are concerned about their personal data as well. Mm. And now you're going to find that you'll just see these large businesses starting to implement it. I do think small businesses will do it first. They'll have more flexibility to do it. So they'll do it in some way, shape or form to begin with because it's probably easier for them to do it. But then large businesses will start to do it as well. And even if you just use it to check your grammar, that's using AI and that's mm. using AI to help you in your job. It may not be taking over your job today. It might be helping it take over your job today. But it's probably going to get there at that stage. But again, the thing that I find interesting is that there's a lot of dollars that will be impacted by this, but I just think businesses haven't really gotten onto it yet, and that's that's going to be a pretty steep learning curve for a lot of them. $680 billion is a lot. Yes. Well, and that's all the time we have for, ladies and gentlemen. The Tea Lady has arrived, and 1968 is, is the year again with tea ladies and whatnot. She's brought cake. So it's time for Matt and I to stuff our faces. Thanks for another cracking tech talk. And that cake, I can go and watch a time lapse how she made that cake on yeah. the Samsung oven app. <laughs> Fantastic. I should probably skip the cake today and give my garment and watch something to report. It's been so long since I last moved my feet in quick succession. Hell, it's a beautiful day outside. The birds are chirping and the magpies are making you run just that little bit faster. Stand aside, Matt, and pass me my terry-toweling headband. City to Surf training awaits for me now. Thanks for joining us once again, folks. It's a pleasure to bring you our humble podcast each week, regardless of the physical and emotional costs involved. We hope that you find something today that'll brew a bit of conversation around the water cooler tomorrow, even even enough to make you come, uh, come back again next week. I'm James Eddy, and I look forward to catching you again in one week's time. Until then, take care and hooroo.